Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover. I am Vlad and my guest today is FF2000, who used to be known as Fartface2000, who is the first recipient of the LN, what was it called? The Lightning Torch? Uh, um, yeah, Lightning Torch. It, it was made by Hadlonat and Friends know you as Jim, so I'm not sure if I should call you FF2000 or Jim, or people like to call you Fartface just because it's funny and it was interesting to see that this early technology was adopted by somebody who bravely called himself Fartface and his name is on mugs and t-shirts right now. But I'll call you whatever you want. You can call me, you can call me Jim. Okay. But, I, but for, I'm not insulted if you call me Farface. It's all in fun. Uh, somebody said when we were about to do this interview and having that preliminary talk that you should fart during this interview. Which <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of, honestly. It would be juvenile. Yeah. No, it was a juvenile name to begin with. And to be honest with you, I, um, I think it was like 2008 or 2009. I was listening to the radio and... Um, Either Jamie Foxx or Kanye West was talking about Twitter on Howard Stern and no concept of what uh, social media was all about. And I just downloaded it on my Android smartphone at the time. And, uh, and I, you know, in like two minutes, I created that username just trying to think of something. Didn't think of anything of it and never had really, was too lazy to ever change it. Right. And then you ended up using it for your Bitcoin curiosities and you made friends with Hadlonat. And then next thing you know, you become the first person to receive the torch. By the way, are you a technical person? Because you are a very early adopter of the Lightning Network. Not at all. Not at all. Just get by on what I can figure out online. So you're, you're telling me that you just put some Satoshis in some kind of wallet. I'm not sure if it was one on which you run a node or a custodial one. And you figured out how to get that torch from Hadlonat? Yes, exactly. Actually, I did both. I, um, when they advertised the Casa node, I wanted to see what it was all about. You know, I was running a Bitcoin Core wallet on my home computer. So when they advertised it, I quickly ordered one set that up you know i had a couple issues but just like anybody else and they had a telegram channel set up to walk you through your your issues and it was fun to get involved and actually when i was when i accepted the lightning torch from hodlnaut i was away i was away from my home so i used the custodial wallet um i think it was blue wallet yeah it's blue wallet um, and that worked pretty easily too. And again, I wasn't using a lot of money or anything, and I was anxious to just help, help them out, you know, help the developers work through the issues and, and learn at the same time. It was a lot of fun. So how come you're the first person? Are you good friends with Huddle or not? Um, not really, just, um, you know, just interacting with him on Twitter, similar interests, similar um, Bitcoin uh, th thinking, I guess, you know? Right. And I guess you just happened to be the first person to respond to his proposal. Yes. Yep. Just the right place at the right time. So you're like Hal Finney, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so what is your background? How did you get into this? Well, my background is actually construction. Um, I'm a carpenter by trade. Did that, you know, and but for about 10 years and then started to work into the into an office position. This is like going back into the mid 90s. And we just really started using computers and and software to, to do takeoffs and stuff like that. So I really had to learn all that on the cuff. And we didn't we're a small company and we didn't have like a technology company you know anybody that really teaches anything and we and we really all had to learn as we went along and a lot of people in my business got replaced because they didn't want to learn you know nobody wanted to learn how to do something that they've been doing for so long a certain way especially a more productive way you know not too many people unless it's your business you want to learn how to do it you know if you're working for somebody so I saw a lot of that as you know my business was growing you know I saw a lot of people just you know, become extinct because they didn't want to learn new tricks. Nobody thought email was going to take, was going to take, you know, was going to take, uh, nobody thought a lot of technologies were going to take and they just did, man. It was amazing to watch happen. Um, you know, I lived through it and uh, I've always embraced it rather than, you know, rejected it. I, li I like change. I, you know, I don't know why I just do. I like to see things change and get better. Um, where are we going with that? You, oh, my, my background. So yeah, that's my background. And, um, you know, had my first computer when, when I was probably like 10 years old, a, a Commodore VIC-20. Then we, we had the Commodore VIC-64. But then I never really, like, got into it much more than that because then I went through my teen years and, you know, I didn't want to really play with computers. I wanted to uh, do other things, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, I wanted to hang with the cool kids. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to be a nerd. Exactly. And um, didn't really come back into computers until like the internet came around in like the mid 90s at home. I got my I got a home computer when I was and started going on the internet and just like anybody else. And, and, have, and have watched that evolve where now it's just like every day I'm amazed how user friendly everything is, you know, browser extensions, everything's just talks to each other now. It's just it's phenomenal. Before you had, there was always an exception to the rule and everything always broke and everybody always had an excuse why they weren't going to learn how to use this because it didn't work. Everything pretty much works now. You know what I mean? And it, with a little bit of ingenuity, you can figure out your problems. That's actually inspiring. I come from the generation which was raised with user interface. And I remember my first computer back in 2000 had Windows 95. It was an older one, which my father bought me to actually learn because he saw what the future was and thought I should not be digitally illiterate. And I had a mouse and I would double click on the icons. And even though I guess Windows 95 relied much more on the command line and sometimes there was stuff that you could not do without knowing how to use MS-DOS, it was still pretty visual. And now yeah. I watch the kids who are all day long on their tablets and they don't have to learn anything. Like I remember having to consult a book which presented to me guides on how to do stuff. And not only that they don't need to do that, but if they find themselves in any kind of trouble, they can find a YouTube video which presents everything and you just follow step by step without 
actually trying to learn how it works or why that happens. Yeah, I, I wish I had that skill set, man. I wish I understood command line. I took a couple little courses over the winter when I had some time. I think it was Code Academy. I got to like lesson number seven and it just was like, whew, it just got a little, got a little too difficult. You know what I mean? Yeah, I signed up for that one too. I didn't follow through all the classes, my shame. <laughs> but I still learned something. And yeah. right now, I guess it's a cliche to say it, but Bitcoin is like the internet in the 90s. Yeah. Not only in terms of interfaces, but also in terms of adoption and development. The main difference is that there's this speculative money aspect on which people seem to put a lot of time and effort just trying to figure out whether or not it's going up or down. I guess yep. with internet companies, it was a little different. The pace was slower. The pressure was a lot lower. Yeah, I, um, the way I see Bitcoin is not only like the internet, I see it more like a social network that's growing, that people have skin in the game. So it's like, imagine when you, if you join Twitter and if when you join Twitter, you got a token and now you owned a piece of the Twitter network. That's how I see Bitcoin. Right. I guess that's a fair perspective, except that when you join Bitcoin, you just most likely buy some coins on an exchange like Coinbase, which I guess is the most popular in the United States. Yeah, but now you can participate on this value network and you own stock in it, basically. You know what I mean? And it's, it's when you think about all, I mean, there's so many different things you can say about Bitcoin and all the different game theory of everybody that's involved in it. It's it, every day you wrap your head around a new idea and you're like, oh my God. Right. but. In order to own that share in the network, you have to run your own node. And to a lot of people, even though it's a very straightforward click, point and click experience where you just follow the steps and it's available for every major operating system and you just have to download and wait. It's still, I guess, an impediment and people don't understand why it's necessary. They will say, why? Because it works on this custodial wallet, this SPV wallet, just as well. Right. I guess with Lightning, we are able to better understand why it's important. Yeah. Um, I still, I mean, I'm run, I have actually run two nodes. You know, I have a Bitcoin Core wallet, but I turn that on and off. You know what I mean? Because my Casa node runs 24-7, so... I use them for different functions. Um, and yeah, I mean, you need, in order for this thing to stay decentralized, you need people to, uh, to commit to running a node. Exactly. And so far there was no incentive to run a node as you're not the same as a miner. You don't earn any kind of revenue. But if you want to validate your own transactions and be sure at all times that you receive the right, right amount at the right time, especially now that I guess transaction times are not as fast as they used to be when the blocks were not full. 
it's important to run a node and also to onboard the Lightning Network, it's essential. I agree. Um, going back to transaction being busy, on another subject, the other night I came home and I saw there was 85,000 transactions in the mempool and not being, not using Bitcoin that much only to really, the only function I really use it for is to accumulate, right? To save. I, um, I wanted to see how, you know, how it would be if I needed to sell my Bitcoin, right? During a time when the network's busy, because that's a little something that, you know, is a little fearful unless you've done it before. So I ran through a dry run during when the when the network was busy. I took I took um, coins from my wallet and sent them to an exchange to two different exchanges and tested it out. And it really wasn't that bad. I, I think I sent them at like 1030 at night um, and I did a couple different transactions adjusting the fee to just see the time that it would take for them to um, to confirm and they would let me trade them. And I just went to sleep. I wasn't going to sit up. This was like 1030. And then I saw the emails in the morning. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. It was like an hour and on the one transaction and maybe like two hours on another transaction. And what That's, kind of fee did you set? I think the uh, the highest I set was 65 sats per byte. And then I think the other ones, I think were about 20 sats per byte. That's fair. Yeah. Sometimes uh, I set the lowest possible fee because I know that at some point the mempool will clear out and unless I'm in a hurry, I will just send with the lowest fee possible. I always send with the lowest uh, fee possible because normally what I'm doing is I'm just uh, sending my Bitcoin into cold storage and I really, you know, what's the difference if it takes an hour or a day? I you don't know, mind if it takes up. a week. <laughs> right. But I mean, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm using Bitcoin for. I mean, I'm using it as an, an alternate investment class to what I'm exposed to. Not by um, want at this point, but just because th that's, that's the system I'm in. You know what I mean? I, you, you interact with a lot of people who are all Bitcoin and I've met a lot of them, but I don't come from that background and it's not like I can just exit the existing financial system, nor do I want to. Um, you know what I mean? It's the normal, the existing financial system is convenient for me, but on the other hand, I've learned a lot since I've started to got into Bitcoin about the rest of the people in the world and what they're going through. And it's, and I've really opened up my eyes to my own um, government, my own economy, even though I've seen it. But, you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes. You know what I mean? And you just go with the flow. There is no way for you to object the kind of economy that you have in your country. And you accept it and go on and try to figure out how to make it work better for yourself. But when you have an alternative, you can think outside the box. Yes. And then especially when you have kids, when you start to worry about the next generation, you know, you're like, how are my kids going to 
if the tax rate goes up to 70% or, you know, how are my kids going to get by? You know? Yeah. And now I, I just checked to see the inflation rate of US dollar. It's 1.8%, which if you think about it is not that bad. There are countries around the world which have maybe 20%, 50%, a few thousand percent like Venezuela. Yep. To them, it's essential to have the kind of monetary system which is more secure and which makes sure that they're not going to be losing a lot of money and they're going to preserve their buying power. Yep. But in America, if you're somebody who is working and saving money, 1.8% inflation, although it doesn't sound that bad as, you know, using dollars for a medium of exchange, it's still a terrible store of value, which is why we have thousands of financial companies. I mean, I get junk mail. I get pounds of junk mail from every investment thing you can imagine because people have to invest their money if they want it to hold value. Right. You know, and me, I'm a business owner. It's like, I have my money already invested in my own business and I'm already putting that to risk. You know, I have employees that work for me. They could, they could do really whatever they want on any given day. So I already have a lot of my money invested in a business that I'm in control of. Now, if I'm lucky enough to make some money and save some money, I got to invest it in a company that I have no control over just to hold its value. You know, I, and I'm not complaining because it, it's been, you know, we've been really lucky, but I've also lived through a couple of bear markets in my life and you lose 50% of your value in a week. And it's really hard to, it's really hard to sell and, and stop the bleeding in most, in both times, I pretty much just sat there and took it. You know, I tried to hedge, but it, at the end of the day, it's, it's very hard. It's a fast moving market. When the stock market goes, it's just like, it's just like Bitcoin. You know, there's no, every emotion's going through your body. You don't know if to buy, sell, what to do, you know? Right. And, and when you lose, lose 50%, now you got to make a hundred percent back, right. To get back to where you are, where you were. I guess wants- also lived through that ugly financial crisis from 2008. Yes. And I suppose you are also investing your money around the time. Yep. I've, I've, I've pretty much been investing my money since the day I went to work, which was 18. I entered the workforce when I was 18 years old. So I had a, I had I have four older brothers and my oldest brother's in the um, investment business. He sells insurance and he sells mutual funds. And he taught me to save early on. And my father was very, um, very, a very good saver. And he always told us um, to pay yourself first. And give me a second. That always stuck with me and my brothers. We always repeat it. And hold on. <laughs> it gets together. I bring up my father. I got choked up. So just calm down. <laughs> Let me calm down for a second. But Don't worry. It, 
it's an important message. And, and there's so many people that I know that don't pay themselves first. They spend first. And then they realize they have nothing. And then they make every excuse why they can't save. Why they can't save $25 a week, $50. And, you know, it's because they're looking at all this debt. What's $25 a week at that point? Once you get debt, it's very hard to save. You can't rationalize it. And I was lucky enough that I had, you know, guidance. And, uh, you know, started saving when I was young. It makes a lot of sense if you live in the kind of country which ensures a healthy economy, which allows you to save. But if you live in a country where there's a lot of inflation, you are incentivized to get rid of your fiat as fast as possible and buy stuff. And some people just consume, others try to find ways to invest their money because the next month it's not going to be as valuable and they will not be able to buy the same kind of stuff. And I can give you the example of my parents who got married in 1989 and they they were thinking of starting a new and prosperous life with the money they saved and they received on their wedding. And they wanted to buy a new car. They signed up, they filed in the papers. And it took them like six months to receive the approval to get the car. It was a lot more difficult around the time. Romania was still transitioning from the old communist days. And with the money they could pull back from this investment, which they were trying to make in a new car, it, it was actually, I think they got about 90% of it back. But by the time they got it back, it, it was so invaluable that it could only purchase them a new couch in their living room. Oh my God. scary just knowing that the same kind of money that could be used to buy a car just less than a year later can only buy you a couch. And I think around 1995, 1996, my country was in the top 10 most economically unstable with the highest inflation rate. Maybe it was in the top five. I've seen a graph somewhere. And people are not really trusting their own currency in order to save. Now it's not as bad. You have, I guess, 5% inflation. It's not as bad uh, as it used to be, but it's still not a good store of value. People still prefer to get dollars or euro if they want to save. But that's still a lesson that's ingrained in our culture. And we know to distrust our government with economics. That's why when it, we need Bitcoin, and that's where I wanted to get with this point, that the kind of currency that does not get inflated, which is an, an increasing amount of demand, mm -hmm. is actually a smart investment and a good way to save your funds. And maybe it looks volatile at this point, and it is if you take into account the events that we saw throughout the past week, you, we watched Bitcoin go to 14,000 and then drop back to 9,000 and now it's 10,000 or something. That's kind of scary for a lot of people. But if you look on the past few years to see how it performed, it's still very good. And it's mostly due to the financial 
system which governs Bitcoin and the system of incentives. As you have the supply, which lowers every four years. I mean, the mining rewards, which lower every four years and you incentivize the miners to increase the price by selling their Bitcoins on exchanges if they want to remain profitable. And so far, the market has behaved in a way that has maintained this profitability to all participants. And a Bitcoin was never cheaper on the market than it cost to mine, which I guess is great. Yep. Going back to the volatility. I have a couple thoughts on the volatility. My first thought is like any of my friends who I try to convince that this would be a good idea that they start to save in Bitcoin. I always tell them, you know, number one, do a little bit at a time. You don't want a big position because you'd never be able to stomach a big position and you'd never be able to hold on. Plus there's a lot to learn. So you don't want to buy anything a lot, a lot, a lot of anything that you really know nothing about. And it does take time to learn. And you know, the, every day you think, you know, something the next day you learn something new. So take it easy. But the good thing about the volatility is this, if there was no volatility, number one, there'd be no liquidity because you'd get no speculators. But number two, if there was no volatility, Bitcoin would never get distributed the way it is because if there was no volatility and it just slowly crept up, anybody could ride it. You know what I mean? I'd be able to, I'd be able to hodl Bitcoin for eight years if there was no volatility, you know, nine years. But I can tell you right now from holding other investments and just experiencing the 300% increase in Bitcoin that we just had, you know, it's going to take some real resolve for you to hodl your position in Bitcoin. So you, number one, I think you have to have a, a percentage of, you know, your wealth that you can handle that volatility. And, num and number two, you got to have a lot of resolve in what you're investing in. You got to believe in it and beyond, beyond profit, you know, you got to have um, a more noble cause, a more noble feeling, you know what I mean? And it is a noble cause, man, just for every reason you just told me about your country. You know, yeah, it, it gets a lot worse if you look at the rest of the world and you see developing nations which hyperinflate their currency and people who basically have no other choice than to trust this decentralized state agnostic monetary system. Yep. And it sounds crazy. It, it sounds like a scam. It sounds like a Ponzi. At first, when you hear about it, I guess the first question that you ask is, who ensures that this will work? When you go to the bank and you take a loan or you deposit your money, you know that the bank is in good relations with your government and there is no way that the agreement that you're making is not going to be fulfilled unless some kind of war starts and the economic environment changes drastically. But in the case of Bitcoin, you basically have to trust that somebody has written honest code and not have that paranoid mindset, paranoid mindset in which you, you think that there's a huge conspiracy and all these computer scientists who tell you that Bitcoin is safe are lying to you to get your money. I've been there. 
Uh, I've yeah. had this conversation with my father, who's an economist, <laughs> and I tried to convince him, and I just gave up. I figured out that he's stuck in the old world, and he hasn't really learned anything <clears throat> from that hyperinflation lesson, and still chooses every day to trust the government. But what yeah. can we can only do as much. Well, listen, you'd have to be foolish not to be skeptical. And at the end of the day, everybody says, um, don't trust, verify. But I don't have the technical chops to verify shit. You could put anything in front of my face. So I, uh, you got to kind of trust the people in the space. And, you know, you got to meet some of them, listen to them, and just hope you're getting good guidance. But, you know, there is a, there is a bit of trust if you don't have the ability to verify the code yourself. I agree. I don't have that kind of expertise either. And they like to say that even an art student can go into the GitHub repository and check out what's going on with the code. And yeah, of course you can, but how many people can actually interpret it and read it and find weaknesses in the code? I think from this perspective, Bitcoin is kind of elitist and only a small majority of people have the knowledge required to understand it. But also the fact that it hasn't been broken and there's a large incentive to do it means that it works. Yeah, uh, and, and you can and, have and, governments cracking it down. You can you could have transnational corporations like IBM and Dell and Microsoft and whatever big company in tech, which has a lot of engineers that know this stuff, you could see them cracking down and stealing Satoshi's 1 million Bitcoins, right? Yep. Well, this is the thing. In life, there's, there's, there's always going to be a certain degree of trust. I mean, what do, you, what do you value more, your life or your money? Well, that, that's kind of an obvious answer. Right. So you get on an airplane, wouldn't you? When's the last time you looked at an, a jet airplane engine? And think about how many things on an airplane between the pilot, the mechanics, the co-pilot, you're trusting everything. There's, you know, you got to take trust. You got to trust things in life. You know, there's no getting around that. You drive yourself crazy. Exactly. And when you buy a new product, like a new phone, you trust that the engineers were good enough to produce something that will not explode in your face. Like it happened with some Samsung phones. Yep. Exactly. You have this huge system of reputation and you look at the records of various actors, be them companies or individuals, and you tend to act according to what kind of reputation they have. Yeah, that well, there's a big benefit of modern day. You know, back when I was younger, we had consumer reports and that was a written publication you had to subscribe to, right? I mean, that was about as good as inside information as you got on anything you bought was consumer reports. Now, not only can you go on, on the internet and search something, but you can interact with, if anybody releases a product and you're in social media, I mean, everybody and their mother comments on everything. It's, you know, there's a lot of feedback there before you do something. You know, if you take your time, and, and taking your time today is like 
10 minutes before you make a decision because that's really all you need to do your, you know, to do some decent research on any product. Right. But at the same time, you also have many more products and it's a lot more difficult to make decisions just because you have that kind of fatigue. Mm -hmm. Too much stuff to choose from. A big menu. A big menu, just like in the case of shit coins. <laughs> yep. Well, my philosophy on shit coins, and I have them because during my voyage, I accumulated some, you know, but I keep them just because they're not really worth that much. And they're a reminder of if you watch them in the value of Bitcoin, you know, forget about what they publish in dollars. Just look at what they're valued in Bitcoin. Um, but my philosophy on shit coins is, and I've learned this, unless you really need it, why buy it? Like an Ethereum token, I'm not going to write a smart contract. You know, what do I need that for? You know, I need money. I need, I, I like Bitcoin because it gives me an opportunity to hopefully accumulate some value over time. But all the other shit coins, you know, they're edge cases I see for computer programmers, not necessarily anybody of my generation, you know? Like, why do I need an EOS token? What am I gonna do with it? Well, if you ask them, they're <laughs> going to find lots of creative responses. I'm sure. But if there, if there, and there might be way down in the future. And when there is, and if I need it, I would buy it. You know, if, it's, if I got to use it for something. But right now, there's not anything I really need to use it for. So why would I buy it? That makes a lot of sense. But people like to speculate and get greedy and they see all these mainstream oh, stories about all these Lambo buying bros who got into Bitcoin in 2011 when they were trying to buy drugs on the Silk Road and they forgot what they wanted to do and ended up huddling and became millionaires. And then some people will have this mindset that you got to look for the next 1000x. Yeah, I mean, honest, that's what drew me into, into Bitcoin was the initial greed of, I think, my first purchase was actually not Bitcoin, was Ethereum to send over to Binance to buy XRP because, <laughs> because I was on vacation. So I had been dismissing Bitcoin, you know, most since the beginning, since I heard it. And this is going back to the Christmas of 2017. So I was on a Christmas vacation and a friend of mine who has a house where I vacation was there and he was telling me, Oh yeah, this XRP, it's like 20 cents, 30 cents. I really like this one. My son bought it. He already doubled his money. It's going to be like the Bitcoin that banks use. You know, it's going to be regulated. He heard about it on CNBC. So I was like, well, why don't you send your son over and show me how to buy it? So his son came over, showed me how to open up a Coinbase account, buy Ethereum, send it over to Binance, open up an account there download an XRP desktop wallet, you know, but, and that's what drew me in on my voyage. And listen, you're, my opinion is nobody's going to go about this per the playbook. You can tell them exactly the roadmap and they're not going to really understand the value of Bitcoin unless they, 
wander. You know what I mean? Or and, and it's probably best to wander when you're first coming in, when you're not when you don't have a lot of money in it and you can see the downfall in all the shit coins rather than later on when let's just say you've made a lot of money in Bitcoin. Now you got all this wealth. Now you're going to risk that and on shit coins to try to do it again. You're going to lose a lot of money. So you're better off learning your lesson like I did, I think, early on, you know, with a little bit of money, learning that where the path of shit coins leads you to. And also you know, now sometimes shit coins can be educational. Exactly. You run a node and you try to use a wallet. And when you get to Bitcoin, you're not going to have any losses because of your lack of experience. You know how it works. Yep. But I agree that altcoins can be very interesting experiments in terms of technology and they can do something which Bitcoin will never risk to do because there is a lot of money invested in it and it's supposed to be secure and you have all these institutions coming. You don't want to experiment too much. You want whatever gets released to be tested and approved by a large number of scientists who have very credible, credible backgrounds. But in the case of some kind of shitcoin, you, you just take the code from the GitHub, you merge it into your program and you say, look, I, I've implemented Schnorr signatures like a year earlier than the Bitcoin folks. Look at me, I, I'm a brilliant engineer. And my project works and it has privacy features and it has whatever. And it can be educational to see what goes wrong. It's bad to invest in coins, but it's interesting to observe them and see, okay, this project has tried to implement this kind of protocol and it promised to do this and it had this kind of marketing and this is what went wrong. Yeah, there is, there is a lot to learn. And I, and I guess if any of any, and if anything is learned, hopefully they'll, eventually ported into the Bitcoin network. Um, and that's the way I would, I, th I see it. I, I think there's too many people with skin in the game in Bitcoin. You know, everything else is pretty much an experiment. And I don't see the Bitcoin holders dumping their Bitcoin and jumping over to some shitcoin. And I think if, if as this thing grows, it's going to grow from the nucleus. It's not, you know, you're not going to get a billion people who haven't used cryptocurrency to just start using a different cryptocurrency, you know, and out, outman the network that we already have in place. It's going to grow from the Bitcoin network as far as my, I'm concerned. I think that's where the value is. It's the holders of Bitcoin. I agree. And I guess this new cycle of the market, which is beginning right now, I guess we are at the beginning of a bull market, just shows that there's a lot more interest in BTC as opposed to anything and everything else. And people expect the next out season to take over. Well, that will not happen until the new players step in and become greedy when they see news on television and read articles on the internet about people making money off of Bitcoin and they will see, they will look at Bitcoin, they will say, oh, it's so expensive. I cannot afford to buy one. But then they look at XRP and they say, oh, it's 40 cents 
I, I can buy like <laughs> sounds familiar. Yeah, you've done it. And <laughs> my, my, my first exposure was to Ethereum, which I thought was brilliant. And the idea of having this decentralized world computer, which was running applications and basically constructing a new internet with smart contracts and stuff, it sounded so good in the marketing department. But then you, you see that something as basic as trading cards with kitties can block the network. And it's not fast, it's not effective, it's not really secure. And people have found a lot of holes in the Solidity smart contracts. Well, you gotta look for something that actually has a future and is, has less hype and is more trusted. And at first, I, I guess when you see all these Bitcoin maximalists, it's easy to hate on them when you're a newbie. And you will just say, oh, they, they were just lucky. They got, they got in very early. And now they're trying to make us buy their bags. And I, I guess this is a reasonable objection to them. But then you understand that it's the only kind of technology which is tested and solid enough to exist maybe in 10 years. And if you look at the history of shit coins, you will see that back in 2014, you had coins that you don't even see in the top 1000 right now that were in the top five, top 10. And projects get created and abandoned in the space at a very rapid pace. But the constant and the king of this whole movement has been Bitcoin and nothing has changed. Not Ethereum, not XRP, not Monero, not Litecoin, not anything else which is more or less robust in these days has managed to dethrone the king and provide a use case that is just as solid as sound money. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned maximalists, I got to tell you, um, I was never, I've never been offended by a maximalist. maximalist um, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I give them a lot of credit because if you go through, if you just like listening to stuff on YouTube is like a timeline. You can see it's the same old argument over and over and over again with the same people. And they've already parted ways. And why are they going to rehash the same argument? But they do it so the people who are new or who are catching this argument after it's been resolved five times, they want to make sure that they have the information. And it's, you know what I mean? And it's like they almost feel responsible for um, being ambassadors to Bitcoin. And uh, there's been a few who've been uh, unbelievable uh, for me. You know, with all the questions I've had techno technologically, they've helped me out um, in a lot of things. So I've really never ha been offended by them at all. I mean, I, I think they're noble. I think they want sound money. Regardless if they were here first or not, I mean, like I said before, anybody that could ride that volatility, they have to be in, in it for more than just a profit because you could have bought a, you, it's very hard not to dilute. I don't see anybody that didn't dilute themselves out of their position, you're, you know, to date, very few.
you know, it's an exponential increase. How could you not, after you're up a thousand percent, take some money off the table? Right. Makes a lot of sense. So, so they're taking all that risk. They've been here. I give them all the credit in the world. I guess you had to be a little crazy back in the early days to trust in something which hasn't proven itself to do anything. It was just a nice promise. And I guess it alluded to developers at first and then libertarians who saw some potential in it. But other than this, it wasn't until this big wave and this big bull run of 2017 that people started to come into the space and pay close attention to what's going on. And as a result, now you have televisions like CNBC, like you mentioned, which cover what's going on with the market. And you have some mainstream attention from Bloomberg. They, they are using the at crypto dash on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So it's huge that they pay attention to this market and it just shows you that there's so much more than speculation going on and there's a long-term game that's being played. After all, if you look at Bitcoin as a protocol, it has been out for longer than 10 years. Yep. Um, yeah, CNBC and Bloomberg, I don't know how much good they're doing for it, but like we said before, you know, that's how people come in. They, they come in out of uh, wanting to make money and then they learn, you know, hopefully they learn that uh, it's about sound money. It's not about making money. It's, it's really just about sound money for everybody. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess it's going to be interesting to see if they become hostile to the idea, if the government becomes hostile to to see how they switch the narrative and how they play along with it. And I guess this talk about Bitcoin being used on the dark markets has been around for quite some time. And they call it, you know, a drug coin. And then they went on and call, called it a Ponzi. And you had mainstream Nobel Prize winning economists who started to talk about Bitcoin, which I guess is huge. Yep. Well, as far as the criminal side of it, I mean, that's up to us normies just to uh, debunk. Um, by saving in it, you know, um, I started a little during the winter. Um, this last winter, February, I started a little company called Bit Piggies, where I, um, I take little plastic pigs and I take an open dime and I expose the public key on the open dime. I make QR labels and I package them together as like a, a gift that you can give to somebody, to, to, a, to a baby. And it basically gives them a unique Bitcoin address that they can save money in. And it's basically just an introduction um, to, Bit, to Bitcoin. You know, it's not really using Bitcoin right, but it's, it's a start and it, it teaches them some of the basics and more than the kid, it'll probably teach the parents. So it, it was a little idea I came up with. I didn't put a, a ton of time or a ton of money into it, but I have sold a few of them. I, um, they sold, they sold them at the Bitcoin 2019 conference. 
Um, I'm going to be, they're going to be giving them away at, I think at bid block boom. Um, so I'm basically not making money with it. I'm trying to get them out there and hopefully get people to start, you know, giving Bitcoin, giving these little pigs to people they know that they want to start saving in Bitcoin. And hopefully, and at the same time, it's a different meme than the black market. It's the exact opposite. It's little kids who are planning for their future by saving in money that's sound. You know what I mean? So how are you going to, if you get enough of these little kids with, pig, with piggy banks who are banking on Bitcoin, how is your government ever going to criminalize that? It'll be like Hong Kong. People will be protesting on the streets like it's Hong Kong. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that, that's actually a good idea, though. I can see how, actually, why does it need to use the open dime as opposed to a paper wallet? It could. The open dime just allows me to generate a public key without knowing the private key. You follow me? So I can make the QR label so they can stick it on the side of the pig. So when I originally thought of the idea, it was like kid would keep it on his counter, on his uh, dresser. If uh, his room was clean, his father would come in and shoot him a couple thousand Satoshis. You know, the dream is eventually that somebody will invent a piggy bank like this that's a, an open, that's a, um, a full node that can generate new addresses, you know, and maybe just be watch only. And the parents would have, you know, the key to the, to the bank when the kid wants to use it. But I, I don't have the resources, the time or the know-how to do that. But actually, when I was at, um, when I was at the conference, I, was, uh, I talked to Samson Mao for about two minutes And he said he was going to do that. And I said, I encourage you, man. I, I'm all for kids saving in Bitcoin. You know, I could give a shit about my little uh, plastic piggy banks. I'm more about getting the message out, getting young people to start saving. I know that Samson Mao has that. My little pony themed magic crypto friends brand. And right now they are trying to appeal to parents who have children and might buy plush toys and merchandise that is very nice looking, but at the same time introduces kids to the idea of using Bitcoin to save money. And I think I saw during their, I think it was an early May conference that they, they had this big launch of a website with the promise that they would do educational cartoons and all sorts of cool stuff for younger audiences that might be interested. So yeah, he definitely has the resources to use your idea, which is really good. But if you don't have the time and the resources to take it to the next level, then maybe somebody else will conceive a better piggy bank. Yep. And then I guess the world will be very interesting to see how people trade Satoshis and think in terms of how many Satoshis they have spent and how many they saved. That's what it is. It's a game of accumulation. At the same time, we don't know what it's going to be like when the world will have a deflationary currency. 
as in you have the whales right now who hold maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin. And they were, they have been around for eight years, maybe. And they bought in when it was worth a few cents. And now they're very rich because they held on to their Bitcoins. And we have no idea what they're going to do with their money. Clearly in a society which only uses Bitcoin, they will be like the aristocrats of our times. But unlike the currency system where the government can inflate the currency and effectively lower their wealth in doing so, we, we will have to basically make these people make donations and we'll have to negotiate with them in order to get that money somewhere useful as opposed to holding them indefinitely. Well, that's what, well, I think the volatility gets them off their coins. Uh, you know, the, you got to think this volatility gets them off some of their position here and there. So, um, but who knows? You're right. It's a big mystery how a deflationary economy would work. Um, but it makes sense to give it a shot. I mean, we know the way the one, the one where we know the way fiat works, you know, they just keep making more. So you got to keep working harder, saving more, taking more risk. And they're always putting everything at the edge of the system, you know, at the limits. So we're going to find out. I'm pretty sure. I think people are going to start to think about Bitcoin in this country more, you know, even though we haven't really needed it as much as you guys. But I think it's I think it's. People are starting to ask me about it more and more. They're getting interested. They see inflation. It's, it's here. You go to the supermarket, food's expensive. The things you need are expensive. It's also going to be interesting to see how the prices of the future will be fixed and there will be no reason to adjust them as they are right. in sats. Right. It, it, um, what do you call it? Uh, a wage increase for uh, inflation is not going to happen. Right. Why would you get a pay increase? Like right now, you, you know, the average American gets two to three percent a year increase for a standard of living. Mm-hmm. You might not need that. You might <laughs> your employer might be able to take it from you. you. Might go the other way. It's all interesting. Did you have any kind of interesting business ideas with Bitcoin as it seems to be the entrepreneurial type? Um, I am an idea, man. Things come to me. I go with them. I'm pretty impulsive, but uh, not really so much lately. I mean, listen, I'm really in learning mode. There's a lot to learn here and uh, I absorb it every day, you know, learn a little bit every day, interact with people a little bit every day. So I'm kind of taking baby steps. I, I'm going to stick with this piggy bank thing for, for whatever. It's an easy business for me. I'm hoping that somebody will come along and uh, help me uh, market it. I got a couple little things in the, in the fire. But um, I have another business that you know, really keeps my, <laughs> keeps my time, keeps me busy. So the little that I do... Is good. 
Yeah, and we're, we're happy that you're around. You come from, you're a Gen Xer, right? You come from that generation of teenagers of the 90s? I was a, no, I was a teenager in the 80s. Oh, so you're older than I thought. Yeah, I'm 48. Well, you're still younger than my father. Yeah. <laughs> But you, you have basically adjusted your way of thinking and way of working according to the new technologies, which is admirable. Yeah, well, I've, like I said before, early on, I've seen a lot of people die on the stake just because they don't want to change. Like, I remember playing poker with my friends uh, like 10 years ago, and I was like one of the first ones to get one of those droid phones. Remember the original like droid smartphones? And Not really. Okay, it was, a, it was one of the first ones. There was very few apps on it. They were all stupid apps, but I embraced it. Um, And my friends were like, Jimmy, why would I ever want to get email on my cell phone? I'm like, well, if you're in your own business, don't you think that's going to make you more productive? Yeah, but I don't want that. I don't want to be more productive. I like the way things are. Yeah, but you might. But what about your competition? What are you going to do then when they start to use that and you still have an answering service or you're still using a fax machine? You know, get with it. And I've seen a lot of people just turn, a, you know, turn their nose to change in technology. And before you know it, and listen, it's going to happen to these guys today. Don't kid yourself. Something's going to come out tomorrow that one of the guys that you know today that you think is the most technologically advanced is not going to embrace because it's, it's against everything he's learned to date. And he's not going to want to learn a new trick at that point in his life. You know what I mean? And I've seen it happen. I just have been a little bit open, more open-minded because I like gadgets, you know, I like technology, I like gadgets. Right. And also, I guess in the United States right now, you have this big debate. I'm not sure how big it is actually, but you have a Democratic candidate, Andrew Young, or Yang, I'm Yang. not sure how you pronounce it, but he promises to create <laughs> this universe, universal basic income based on the fact that machines are replacing human labor. And the, yeah. I, I guess that's the lazy way of approaching the issue. It's not about not working anymore because machines do your work. It's about learning how to work to make the machines a lot better. And also creating stuff that machines will never do as there are lots of lines of work and jobs that require humans to interact with humans. Yeah. You want to know my opinion on all that? Sure. First off, yes, we need, listen, even if all do we have, you know, going back to the NAFTA agreement, I don't know if you know what that is, North American Free Trade Agreement in the 90s that they sold to us, um, that basically was sold to us like, hey, we're not going to have all these low paying jobs anymore. We're going to give them to Mexico, we're going to give them there. We don't want those. We want the high tech, you know, we want the, the good jobs. We want the smart jobs. We want the technological jobs. Um, the problem is not everybody's born with the same intellect. So we have a lot of people in society who just really need, need a purpose, just need to go to work every day. They don't need to be 
the smartest people in the world and we need to find jobs for them. We need to keep them busy. We, the worst thing you can do for those people is just feed them, is give to them. Then they just become, you know, relying on society and that's not good. But we do need to have jobs for people that, that aren't really smart. So it, it's a tough subject. I mean, it's a really tough issue. And I, I don't see giving $1,000 a month away to those to people as a solution. I just think we need to come up with, like you said, different jobs for different people. Um, our societies it's really mixed up. And it's very, very complicated. I don't see anybody solving the solutions. We have a lot of issues. We have a lot of pension liabilities. Um, our health care is very expensive. I, I just see, I think everything has to come to a head. And then everybody will get humble. And then we'll sit down and figure out the answers to the, to the problems. But I don't think we'll figure it out using our existing democratic government. I think that is the most inefficient system in the world. I think it's the biggest joke in the world. I'd rather have a noble king, even though that's hard to find, but that would be the most efficient government than the one we have now, because right now we just pay a lot of people to be entertained by lobbyists to get their uh, issues on the, on the table and get it things go their way and we're never going to get anywhere the way things are going now. And I think each, I, I'm not a Republican, a Democrat, I'm nothing. And at certain times in my life, I've felt certain ways, but the older I get, I realize it's like being a Yankee fan or a Met fan. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the employees of the government and we're the customers and they're never going to make the decisions, the tough decisions that, that, would allow, that they would have to sacrifice. And they're never going to tell us that they have to make the tough decisions that we have to sacrifice because they know they won't vote for us. So what is Yang trying to do when he's offering people $1,000? He's trying to buy votes. He's trying to buy other people who are going to be employees of the government so they can direct our government the way they want, not necessarily the way the people that live in this country who are the customers of the government, the way we, you know, the, what's good for us. You know, you're never going to have somebody that works for the state say, hey, we're going to reduce our pension, uh, what we're taking home. They're, that's not going to happen. Even though mathematically we can't pay them, they're not going to say that. Why would they? They'd rather print money, dilute the money supply, and, and fill the budget gaps. They'll do that until they can't because that's the path of least resistance and they've figured out a way to keep us all confused and arguing with each other over you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, it doesn't matter. You're the customer, they're the employee. That, that's a very economic way of, uh, of looking at it and I have a background in political science and back when I was at the university, they would tell us, no, it's important to understand political affiliation and know that it comes with certain ideas. But once you go out there in the field and see how politicians actually act and how they vote and see that they don't care much about their platform once they are 
in Congress in session voting on some issues, they, they no longer think as what they should be acting as because they know we only care about their statements and we are going to watch them on TV and they always have an explanation for everything. And, 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 and to be fair to them, right? They got, a, they got a window of opportunity of two to four years. They, the sacrifices that they, we need to make are not going to be solved in two to four years. You know, we're talking generation. You know, we're talking a good generation of, of sacrifice. And there's not a politician out there who's got a term of two to four years who even if he made the sacrifices while he was in term, the next guy's just going to change all the laws and we're going to be right back to square one. It's stupid. It doesn't work. I mean, imagine if you ran your business like that, where the guy that ran your, you know, was a hot, was a hot potato. You passed it around between people. You could never plan out your future because the guy that's going to precede you might have different plans. Yeah, sure. But the system has its ways of preserving itself, even though politicians come into office and decide to change stuff. You'll still have the bureaucrats and those who never get elected. They are there no matter what the government does. And these people might oppose changes and they will make it slower and still preserve the old system. Right. And that's why we're so inefficient. Yeah, Bitcoin is also inefficient if you look at it. But it's the best way to preserve that anyone can participate and everybody has a voice through their node. It's, it's inefficient, but the actual protocol, the rules are the rules. You just accept them or you bang your head against the wall. Right. Where? I don't know. Some, sometimes I, I think at night, and right now it's about 2 a.m. where I live, and I try to figure out what our world is going to look like in this Bitcoin world. And maybe that we have the best intentions of them all. But how do you make sure that this human element of greed and corruption gets obliterated once and for all? There is no way to ensure that. And basically, if we change our form of money, we might solve some problems, but we're still humans and we're going to end up having the same old struggles. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's going to be, there's, listen, there's a lot of things that we're never going to be able to solve, but if as an individual, you can do what you can and that's all that you can. And, you know, I stopped worrying about society's problems a long time ago. It's, it, you know, you only have so much energy and only so much that you can contribute your energy to. And you have to contribute it to things that you have control over. You know, most people, like right then and there, like a perfect example. A lot of friends I have would rather sit around and complain about politics, something they have no control over. Yeah, you can go vote, but that's just... That doesn't mean shit. But what you do have control over is you could learn how to use Bitcoin. You could learn about you could learn about Bitcoin, right? You you could teach somebody else about Bitcoin. These are things that you have control over. You don't you don't want to. Like if you already are entrenched in the existing financial system, 
what's your motivation to learn about a new financial system that could possibly make what you have look like, or not necessarily go down in value, but would lose value compared to that asset. Why would you want to be interested in something like that? You know what I mean? Most people don't. They'd rather complain about everything that's wrong in their life rather than trying to improve it. I think you've just covered the contents of one article by Nick Sabo, who wrote a blog post in 2008, I think, and I keep coming back to it because it's so good. And it's called 10 Ways to Make a Political Difference. And it starts from the assumption that voting doesn't really make that much of a change. And there's so much more that you can do in order to make sure that society and the people that you care about evolve in a way on which you agree. And that is actually good according to your own understanding. And he recommends people to learn how to use computers, to learn how to code, to become sovereign. And this is his expression, to create your own law. Because you live in a law over which you have no control. It's made by some other people. You can maybe lobby to them. You can spend time and energy trying to make them change their minds, but you can only go so far. But when it comes to your own actions, you can actually create your own law and establish relations with people and make sure that you live the kind of life of which you are proud and which leads you to success and prosperity. It gets very philosophical, but it, it also has some practical points about what you can do. And I, I can send it to you if you want, but you yeah. touched on some of these points and you have similar conclusions. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it's a life lesson learned. I mean, yeah, I've wasted a lot of energy, a lot of sleep. I, my father was a warrior. I think I learned a lot from my father. I remember growing up, my father would sit there and it, right around the time CNBC came out, too. You know, this is going back into the 80s. And it's like the first time you could see a scrolling uh, tick st a stock ticker on TV. And he would sit there and he would watch it. And he, I could see he was worrying over the price of the intraday price of, you know, Citigroup. And it's like, Dad, why do you worry so much? And the same thing with work, you know, with... with uh, with business, you know, you, when, you, when you own a business and, and you um, delegate to other people, well, when you delegate, stop fucking worrying. You know, at that point, you've already given the responsibility to somebody else. Now use your energy towards something that you can do, that you have control over. You know, that's hard for a lot of people to learn. It's much easier to worry. Exactly. You know, and, and, and that's how I feel about my, that's how I feel about society's problems. I, you know, if you actually sat down and tried to figure out society's problems, it'd make you almost suicidal because it's almost impossible. It is impossible. You know, here's a statement for you. Even if you made me personally, even if you, you gave me the reins of this country, I wouldn't know what to do. I don't know the right things to do. I'm not that smart. Now take a thousand people and put them in a room and have them argue over what's the right thing to do. It's, it's so inefficient. So 
how the heck, you know, why worry about something like that? Just do what you can do. You know, look out for yourself, save for your own kids, save for yourself. Don't be a, um, don't be a leech on society. Donate your time to whatever purpose you feel fit, you know, whether it be whatever charity, whether it be just to help out somebody, you know, those are the things you can do. This is the best kind of advice you can give on any podcast, regardless of the topic. And we live in this kind of outraged world where people keep watching what's going on on the news and they check the Twitter trends and they get offended over everything and try to be social justice warriors when the issues at stake are very complicated and they have a bare bones understanding of what's going on. It's insane how far we have gotten technologically that we are able to communicate with each other. But at the same time, we begin to worry about all sorts of problems over which we have no control. But I would be worried if I knew that there's something wrong going on with the Bitcoin protocol, because maybe I'm invested enough in it, both intellectually and financially, to care. Yeah, no, no, I, that's... That's a different story. When people, when I see people debating on Twitter about the Bitcoin protocol, that to me is great. That is, uh, you know, that's people exchanging ideas and being open-minded and, and listening to each other. You know, sometimes it might get a little bit emotional, but that's, that's how they're figuring stuff out. I mean, That's the beauty of Twitter. It's a, it's a playground of ideas. You could bounce it off people. And if you say something that's not right, they're going to let you know. Did you do any podcast before? Never. Okay. <laughs> I feel like you had so much to say in such a short amount of time. And we ended up, maybe this isn't related to Bitcoin, but it teaches you how to be a better Bitcoiner, if that makes sense. How to okay. stop worrying about issues that you cannot control and how to focus on what you can actually do. And it's useful for both maybe the person who invests $100 on Coinbase and waits to see what happens to actually educate themselves to run a node and help the network and maybe get involved and present their understanding of what Bitcoin is to some other people and maybe help it move forward in some way like start a business, create piggy banks for kids. If that you think that's a good idea. And I think it's a good idea and it's helpful. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't that difficult to do. And I pulled it off pretty quick. And a lot of the people in the um, community encouraged me and I was able to send them some of those banks and they gave me some feedback to help me refine it. I think the product's pretty good now where I'm, you know, I might start pushing my advertising a little bit further, try to sell some more, but yeah, absolutely. Those, that's what we need to do. We need to uh, help who we can and do what we can and not worry about things we can't control, man. And unless you got all the answers, I don't have the answers. I'm figuring it out as I go along. I don't think anyone has the answers, but some people are better at pretending. Some people have a lot of um, experience and do bring a lot to the table. 
and they should be, um, exp- you know, voice their opinion loudly, especially if they've been through a lot of the debates that you see on social media, you know, because it is confusing to the newbies. And I, a lot of people help me out. Wait, if they helped you out, how are we supposed to be toxic, right? Because that's the narrative right now. People going into Ethereum as opposed to Bitcoin because we are so toxic and so mean to each other that it's unbearable. Yeah, that's just a way to attack. They don't have any Bitcoin. They got to put us down. You they got to discourage new users. They got to discourage new users. Do you think that there is any kind of previous mindset that you should have in order to get into Bitcoin? Sometimes I hear people complaining that it's not friendly to some groups like socialists. And it's just like a toy for libertarians to hold their wealth into. I don't think you need a time. I think I think you got to want to save money. I think you got to worry. You, you do have to worry about your own wealth preservation. You know, you do have to worry about taking care of your kids. You do have to worry about providing for your loved ones after your exit. Um, if you, if you worry about those things, I think Bitcoin's the best thing for you because that's what it is to me. It's, it's a place that I can store wealth for my, for my future or my family's future. And, you know, a lot of things with price action, Um, my philosophy is this, I really try not to worry about the intraday price, this, that, or the other thing I'm trying to invest from my future perspective. And if you look back at any of the people that have bought Bitcoin up to this point, there's only been about four or five months out of the 10 years. And I'm talking out of my ass. I could be wrong about that, but there's about four or five months, maybe six months that the price was higher than today's price. So that's a very narrow window of opportunity that you had to sell that would have been a, a good decision to sell. And the same thing goes with miners. All these miners that have been mining coins all these years, if they had the, um, the capital to hold on to their coins rather than sell them to pay for their operating expenses, there's only about four or five months out of the life cycle of Bitcoin, that it was a good time for them to sell the coins. Other than that, they should have held on to them. So if you think about that and just think about, do you think that's going to change 10 years from now? Do you think you're probably saying the same thing? You know, I think probably if it's still, if Bitcoin's still in existence, the way it works out with the supply being diminished, And with more and more people starting to use it, it's going to be worth more. So you're probably going to say there's this very small window of opportunity I should have sold that would have been better than today. So I try not to really get caught up in the, in the, the, the pricing so much. I try to zoom out and, um, and invest from a long, a longer position from my, from my future self. So, and that goes, And, and there's another lesson like that I've learned selling selling is just paying the government. If you don't need the money, don't sell, come up with a plan from a plan that you've designed, like sit down and, and like for me, I'm 46. So I sit down like I'm a 60 year old 
and plan from that perspective, not from my, not from my perspective today, because I'm planning for the future. I'm not, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not riding this price as it goes up. I'm, I want to have a certain amount when I'm this age. And in order to get there, I don't want to pay very little taxes. So whatever I buy in Bitcoin, I don't want to be tempted to sell and pay taxes on. So keep what you need in fiat if you need the money to spend and only put in Bitcoin what you're willing to hoard because that's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're saving for your future. So you don't, you don't want to put too much in there that you're going to be tempted to, to sell. I was you don't... going to ask you how come you didn't get into the Bitcoin cash narrative, but now I know as the main utility of Bitcoin, according to your understanding, is to accumulate, not to use for spending. Yes, if I have to spend it, I try to, ref I try to buy back what I, what I bought. So, you know what I mean? From my perspective, it's a bad, it's a bad uh, business decision or, you know, financial calculation for me to use Bitcoin because I have to pay to buy it. I have to pay a fee to buy it, right? If I use my credit card smartly, I can stack sets, which I've just figured out the last couple of days. I've been procrastinating, but uh, some people on Twitter have, have, sh have showed me the way where, you know, I can use the reward I get from my credit card from my, from my credit card company. And then also on top of that, use Lolly and get sats that way. And now this new app pay. So in this country, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not being an elitist or anything. I'm just saying in this country, it's really not, it's really not smart to, to spend your Bitcoin, mm -hmm. you know? Um, the government and it, has made it so hard because there are too many taxes. Yeah. So but that, but that's the game part of the, Vlad, that's part of the game theory, if you think about it. It's working against the government. By them taxing us by using our Bitcoin, it's just making us hodl, which is limiting the supply, and eventually will make the price go up. Sure, but at some point you'll need to sell, or some people will. And they will I make it as difficult as possible. Yeah, well, you'll have to pay your gains. You'll have to pay your gains. It's like like anything else in in this country you know if you if you um let's just say today an apple costs a dollar and you put it in the bank and they gave you 10 percent, right and a year from now you got a dollar 10 in the bank but the price of the apple also went up to a dollar 10 when you when you go you had to pay taxes on that 10 percent, so you actually lost value even though the apple's a dollar ten, and you got a dollar ten in the bank. That ten cents, if it was less than a year, you're going to pay normal income tax. If it's a nor if it's more than a year, you're going to pay capital gains. So there's no getting around that, <laughs> right? So you, so that's why I'm saying you you got to kind of be smart and kind of use Bitcoin as a long term savings. Um, vehicle so let's just say you let's just say capital gains is 15 15 percent you know long-term capital gains 
in 20 years, let's just say your Bitcoin went from 10,000 to 100,000, right? You got a $90,000 capital gain. There's no getting around it. When you spend it, you're going to spend, you're going to give the government 10 or 15% on that, on that, uh, on that $90,000 gain or 15, 20% capital gains on that 90,000 gain. There's, there's just no getting around it, but at least, at least you got, you left their money in the bank. You left it in, in Bitcoin and you got the, you got the growth from it all those years. You know, if you sell it now for a small profit, you're going to pay tax. You're going to have less Bitcoin and uh, you're not going to get all that growth. That makes a lot of sense. So, so basically in this country, if you're holding Bitcoin, you're risking the government. Once you're in a, once you're in a profitable situation, a portion of that risk is, is on the government, right? Mm -hmm. Also, I, I guess a workaround that is to travel to Europe or some other place where you find ATMs. Yeah. Basically withdraw cash, but it's going to be hard to move that large amount of cash if you make huge gains. So you have to find a creative way if you want to cheat the system. Yeah, you know, but I'm not, I'm not one to cheat the system. There's too much that could, if you've ever cheated the system and gotten caught cheating the system, you'll never cheat the system again. Not that I have cheat, cheated the system and been caught, but I had an older brother who got audited once and it was never, it was not fun, not fun for him. So unless you, you, you really want to do in this country, you really want to do things by the rules, especially with Bitcoin. I mean, every, it's pretty damn transparent. Yeah, sure. But I, I don't think you break any law if you decide not to sell in the United States. It's Bitcoin. It's not like they own it. They have no right to make you, to pressure you to sell to a U.S. exchange and pay taxes in your country. And I'm, as long as the money doesn't get into your, I mean, I'm not sure what the laws are like, but if you have cash that never got into your bank account, how can they verify that it belonged to you in the first place? It's a good question. I've always thought to myself like one day that city IRS, say I get audited, I would think that the IRS would they would see every they would see every account that I'm KYC AML against, and they would know exactly how many Bitcoin I should have on my side of the ledger, right? That I should be able to show them that I have possession of, and then they'll say to me, "Okay, where you know, do you still have that Bitcoin?" Uh, yeah, well, prove it. Or if you don't, when did you sell it? What what did you sell it at? You know, I. I don't necessarily know how, how that's all going to play out or if it would, but I'm assuming if things got really shitty, they'd be looking at us for money. What if you gave it away to friends as a gift? Is that a tax event? Um, under certain limits, I don't think it is, but still they'd ask me, okay, show me that transaction. Well, that, that's kind of difficult. Well, it's not like in the case of bank accounts where you have one fixed account where you can check everything. You can just switch between wallets and sometimes the history does not get stored. Yeah, but, uh, you know, in this country, 
I don't think ignorance is an excuse. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think they'll just say, okay, we're just going to say you sold it yesterday at a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's insane. But, but take, I'm saying that's my fear is like, if I can't prove that I gave it to somebody when the price was 10,000, they might say to me someday, okay, if you, if you, then we're assuming you sold it yesterday. So this is what it's worth now. So this is kind of scary. This wouldn't happen in the case of U.S. dollars to ask you how much money you held in your pocket at one specific time. Yeah, because U.S. dollars, you, there is no gain on it. Yeah, it's true. But like when I, in this country, when I sell a stock or something, at the end of the year, I, I get a form from my brokerage and they send that same form supposedly to the IRS. So that's why, you know, you got you to gotta play by the rules. I mean, you could probably get away with it until you don't. And then, then you got to, you know, who wants to worry about that? I, I don't need to worry about that. Also, you have to worry if you're a miner and you basically waste energy or use energy as a way to produce new Bitcoins. And if they come to you and they tax you for that, just for the fact that you created something which exists and you may not have sold it. I'm one of those two. During my voyage, I got into mining. So I've been, I've been mining since for over, over a year and a quarter about. So I have miners that run 24-7. I've already did, I had to do all my paperwork at the end of last year, you know, figure out all my power, all my electricity costs, all my capital expenses, and I have a record of all the mine, of all the coins that I've mined. Total loser, you know what I mean? But I did it because I really wanted to understand the economics of Bitcoin and how this whole mining thing worked. And I'm still doing it now. And in fact, my results, I mean, a 300% increase in the price of Bitcoin, because I think when I figured it out at the end of December, the price of Bitcoin was at like $4,000. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my numbers were horrible and I'm paying way more for electricity than any other miner. You know, I live in the, I live on the East coast of New Jersey, but again, I'm, I did it to learn. And I figure in 10 years, I bet you I'll be profitable if I just hold on to the coins and the price goes up, you know, in 10 years, I'll show a profit, but, um, it's getting more difficult. And I've really gotten a lot of experience with, um, the hash rate and the mining difficulty and seeing how it affects my rewards. Um, and seeing how it affects the price, you know, trying to figure out is it hash that is it the hash that triggers the price or does the price trigger more miners coming? I still don't have it figured out. Um, I'm unclear of what triggers what. I'm thinking it's it's the supply, the future supply glut, because I also mine Litecoin and I noticed when Litecoin was about thirty dollars. A lot of miners started coming on, and my the difficulty got really hard, and um, my rewards started going down, and then all of a sudden the price started to spike. Well, I'm seeing that right now with Bitcoin also, so it's very confusing which drives which for me. 
I never thought about it too much because I don't have the resources or the gears, the equipment to actually run a mining rig. I know that these ASICs are pretty expensive and I don't have even a place for them to run 24 seven. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't think too much of this game theory, but it, it's fascinating. And it's interesting that you were able, were you profitable to the least extent? Right now, probably I'm still losing money. I'm still down money from my mind. Yeah, I'm still down. Um, but I'm still doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm the cost, it, the cost, my cost in electricity is more than it cost me to buy Bitcoin. But I bought these things. I got them pretty cheap. I figured I'd let them run until, uh, until the halving or until it gets really, really, really difficult. But two S9s average me about a hundredth of a Bitcoin every 10 days. But that, that's getting harder and harder. Now it's probably going to be 11 days where it used to be like seven days, but it's pretty cool. It, it was a lot of fun, more of a hobby just to, just to figure it all out. And I, again, I did it during the winter. I live in an area where we have four uh, seasons. So during the winter, I get pretty creative to keep my time, to keep my mind going. I'll do almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And that, that's also inspiring. Some people tend when they find a comfortable kind of lifestyle, they tend to not try new stuff anymore and just indulge in whatever they're doing. Yeah, I don't even watch TV anymore, man. I don't even watch TV anymore. It's too, there's just too much information out there to learn. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy we had this interview. I mean, I felt like I've also learned a lot and I honestly had no idea what to expect. We <laughs> spoke on Twitter briefly and exchanged a few messages. I know that back in March or something, we, we were talking of doing this interview, but it hasn't happened until today. I guess I can publish it in a couple of days. So That's it, awesome, man. Fast enough. I've also done an interview with Hadlonat but I will not publish it until the moment when his legal problems go away. That's great. That's and great. I haven't heard him in a while, but he's back on Twitter. I, I believe it's hard to tell because everybody had, there's still a lot of people with his uh, avatar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I actually spoke to him the day that he got back and I assured him that, you know, there was, there was that bounty reward on his head which was made by Calvin Ayer of CoinGeek. Yeah. And when that happened, I took down everything containing his voice. I, I had an interview with him for Crypto Insider and I, I took it down. So it will be harder for them to identify him because that's terrible. Imagine just being threatened to be doxxed by somebody who is a millionaire and you have no idea what kind of shady stuff he is into. And there are assassination markets and all, all kinds of crazy stuff on the internet. And they, they pay anyone $10,000 to find you. What kind of world is this where you're allowed to do it and nothing happens to punish you? This is like the Wild West. Yeah.
It, it's it's kind of immature, it, it, very immature. And I can't believe that anybody would take BSV serious. Some people take it for money. And I know that I, I have understood that Craig Wright has some mining operations and some skin in the game. And that's why they trust him so much. I don't think a lot of people believe that he's Satoshi. But they can profit off of him. It's all a pretty selfish game of self-interest. That, that's kind of nonsensical, selfish game of self-interest. Hopefully, hopefully someday somebody will uh, pull back the curtain and write a book about one of the insiders that are involved in that will reveal what the hell is really going on. Because I can't believe... I can't believe they really buy into all that bullshit. I actually read some stuff, but it's mostly anonymous about they have this company which is called Enchain, for which supposedly Craig Wright is the chief scientist. And some people claim, some people who work there claim that he doesn't really know stuff. And he's just there because he needs the legitimacy to promote himself as Satoshi. Otherwise, there are other people doing the research and they file patents most of the times for open source software, which is... Exactly funny. the opposite of what Satoshi would probably do. We'll, we'll see. I, I don't want to get sued for making statements, so I'll... I'll <laughs> gotcha. I wanted to say something more, but I, I think I forgot. Oh, yeah. You accepted to work for the Bitcoin Takeover book? which hopefully will get released by August or September. Yeah. I have no idea. I have no control over the people working on it, but I hope that in a couple of weeks they can send their draft so I can edit them, put them together into something comprehensive. And yeah, I think, we'll I think that's a fantastic idea, man. I, I honestly think that's... Because to me, the most interesting part of most of the podcasts and stuff that I listen to you know, the technical side's great and it's great for learning, but the best part is when people tell you how their story and what brought them there and how they got into this. That's the best part of half of these, uh, half of these podcasts I listen to. It's the human side. Exactly. And also, I remember you sent me on the email uh, an attempt to start a newsletter, or I'm not sure what you're trying to accomplish with it, but it's basically your story before Bitcoin. Exactly. And I guess you told some of it during this podcast, but I want to encourage you to pursue that. And I guess people, even though maybe you'll not have a thousand readers, maybe people don't really care about this kind of stuff, but it's still useful and it might inspire somebody who maybe you said you're a carpenter and now you're a business owner and an investor and you're living quite a good life. And you didn't have the best of beginnings. You didn't go to an Ivy League college. Maybe you didn't have rich parents to no, help you I, start out. Well, to be honest with you, I did come from a pretty good um, start. You know, my parents were, were pretty, pretty good. You know, I would say upper middle class. But that's not to say that I couldn't have fucked it up. You know what I mean? I had plenty of friends in the same situation as me who fucked it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
you still got to make the right decisions in life. In fact, sometimes when, when you're, um, and I do have some friends uh, who I can say have, this has happened to, that, uh, you know, they, 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 things were too good for them too early. They never really got that sense of accomplishment on their own. And then they got into other things that just, you know, destroyed their lives. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes early success is a, uh, it's not good. I agree. So that's what, that leading back to the point where remember where I was going full circle talking about when you first get into Bitcoins, maybe it's a good idea to fall on your face, trading shit coins first, <laughs> learn your lesson. Well, there are some people who got lucky the first time around and they started selling books about trading and they started telegram groups for which you had to pay. And right now, maybe that they are in a financially privileged position because they got lucky. They had no idea what they were doing. They just happened. It, it's binary. You just make one of two choices by yourself. So they, they just happened to be on the right side. And now they think they're some kind of geniuses. Yeah. But it's going to come back to them at some point. Because you can't always be right. And I look at people like Tone Vase make up all sorts of crazy theories about the price and then they back down on it until it happens that they write and people treat them as profits well he's selling a service he you know you that's he's selling a trading service he has to uh he has to play that game he has to talk like that but he covers his bases if you watch him he covers his bases so he always has an out. And he's the best of these people. I mean, I can think of YouTubers like Superman, like Ty Lopez, are terrible. They have no idea what's going on. They only come around when it's a bull run. And they know that there will be newbies stepping in. They will sell their services, even though they are clueless. And they pretty much make money off of these people who buy their service, not through what they claim they have made money from. And I guess this is the world that we live in. We'll always have scammers and people who want to believe in them, even though it sounds too good to be true. They just want to believe in that. and They want to believe it will work. And we all like to think that in our case, it's going to be different and not like all the others. And we're not going to end up suffering the same consequences. Yeah, if I can give any advice, to, if I could give one piece of advice, especially in this space, but this applies to pretty much anything in business, you know, I don't care if it's in Bitcoin, construction, whatever business you're in, everybody that you deal with has a different angle. So you have to be cognizant of that. And you, you might not, you know, certain information you don't even want to digest. Because just think of the angle that that person who's coming from is put it. Why is he putting it out there? So you, you really have, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Like some information is not even worth listening to because the angle that it's coming from, it's, it's, it's that information is being put out there to make you feel a certain way from a person who has a certain position. 
And that's not only in, like I said, in this, that's in business also. So like for an example, um, I never ask my customers. So if I'm giving a customer a price on something and I don't hear from him or a day or two, the last thing I'm going to ask him is, hey, how does my price look? Why would I ask him that? Whatever information he give, gives me, it's going to come from his perspective that he doesn't want to spend it any more than he has to. So what's he going to tell me? If my price is already within his budget, is he going to say, oh, your price is good? No, he's always going to say, I could save a couple. I wish I could save a couple bucks. You think you could do a better job? Right? Whereas if you just kept your mouth shut and wait for him to open his mouth, then you'll get a little bit more information. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I think it's the psychology of negotiation where you don't want to look desperate because yeah. they will try to take advantage of you. Yeah. And at first, you have to be desperate because you have no choice. You have no reputation in the game. Nobody knows what you're doing. True. You have to work for a shitty price and sell your services yeah. for less. Just to be able to work your, your way foot up. in the door. Yeah, to get your foot in the door. You're right. I mean, I've been there. I used to work for free, basically, just to prove myself. Mm-hmm. Even this podcast is not paid by anyone. It's just a hobby. Gotcha. But it's fun. And I've heard somebody say this before, that they would never do something for money that they wouldn't do for free. As in, there has to be some kind of passion in what you're doing, or else it's just a routine and a job for which you make money that you're going to hate. Absolutely. You might be able to do a job for a week, a month, but try doing it for fucking 20 years if you don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Luckily, I I was not in that kind of position. My parents have been supportive, and they allowed me to go to university and spend as much time as I needed until I figured out stuff. And when I thought I figured it out, I discovered that I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) How how old are you and and do you work full time? I'm 27 right now. And I I have been working in this space with Bitcoin and stuff for longer than a year. Full time, just writing articles for various publications. At, what, at one point, I was the editor-in-chief of Crypto Insider, but two months later, it shut down. And I guess right now, I'm going to start working for Bitcoin Magazine and another outlet, which is called Decentralized.today, which is smaller, but it pays a fair price, like 50 bucks an article. That's not bad. Not bad for my country, at least. That's fantastic. I have a daughter who is about your age. She's born in 92, so she'll be 27 this year. Yeah. That's my oldest daughter. That's when I was born, too. That's great. Is she into Bitcoin? Is she? She's starting to hopefully consider it. Her husband is, I took him to the conference, uh, the San Francisco conference, but I kind of got him into it a little bit earlier than that. He's, you know, he start. He asked me the other day, Jim. We're thinking of uh, contributing a portion of our savings to Bitcoin. What percentage do you think would be appropriate? You know, he asked me like a question like that. So he's definitely 
uh, getting there. My other two daughters, no. <laughs> they all think I'm crazy. As you said, you only start using something because you need it. If it's just a hobby or somebody else tries to convince you, it's not going to work so well. Once they start thinking of saving and about their future, I guess it's going to be a much easier decision. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm trying to get them to um, get into one of these like reward apps we were talking about, like Lolly or Pay, so they could start to accumulate a little bit. And then they'll see that that's what that, the value of that is doing compared to the value of their dollars. And then maybe they'll actually get it. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have anything else to ask you at this point. We have been talking for almost two hours. Wow. It didn't feel like this. No, very good, man. I, pre I appreciate you um, letting me do this because, um, it's, you know, it was fun. Sure. Do you have anything else to add, like telling people how they can follow you and contact you? They can follow me on Twitter at fartface2000 or at bitpiggies. Those are both my, uh, my IDs on Twitter. Bitpiggies. Let me look yeah, it up. Like P-I-G-G-Y-S. Okay, so it's a Y. Yeah. Bitpiggies. <laughs> it doesn't show up on the first page. Does it at have a website? Yeah, bitpiggies.com. Let's try like this. Bit P I G G Y S S dot com. Okay, so this is the website. Yep. I only saw one thing, a pig, version one. <laughs> <laughs> Supposed to make it very simple. You also have an Instagram, nice. And that's 40 bucks for one pig. For one pig. Looks nice. Is, is it, what is it made of? It's made of plastic. The, the, it's not really the pig. It's the packaging, the instructions, the open dime. You know, you get this little hardware wallet with it. That's for one, for one good address. This is nice, actually. It's a nice design. I was thinking it could be made of ceramic or what do you call it? The material which breaks. Yeah, yeah ceramic. You can make it out of ceramic. If I could find a better pig, I would. This is the best pick I could find so far. I've looked. It looks nice. And I, I hope you succeed with this. If I was in the United States, I would buy one of these from you. But if I was to buy one now, I would pay about $100 for the shipping. And that's not very convenient. You know what I'll do? I want to send you a couple picks. So when I'm you get off here, you... No, nah, don't worry about it. I want you to give them away. That's what I want you to do, because that's the, re the only, I'm not really selling pigs to make profit. I'm hoping to spread the, spread the, the message. So when we get off, just DM me an address. I've sent them overseas to some people already, and it's the least thing I could do, Vlad. Oh, that's very kind of you. I'm not sure if I will accept. Let me think about it, okay? You'll, you'll accept. You'll do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So thank you very much. This was great. No problem, man. I'm going to publish it because great interview and I'm finally doing what I like. All right, man. I'll talk to you. I got to go get something to eat. It's like eight o'clock here. I skipped dinner. 
It's almost three in the morning here. <laughs> All right. It was good talking to you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.